Hi, Mon. How was your summer? Uh, I can't remember. I feel like I've been camping on the Alaskan Peninsula among grizzly bears for two months. What about you? I was thinking you were looking a little grizzly. <laughs> yes. Mentally, I've been on an isthmus between the Yurubamba and Kamasea rivers in Peru. Today's guests have a lot to answer for. That was very well pronounced, by the way. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to season two of Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we plan imaginary dinner parties for cultural luminaries and their dream guests. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, an author and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. By popular request, this will be a whole season of dinner parties, and we have some truly exciting guests coming on, both real and imagined. Don't we, Emma? Do we ever. I've spent the last few days mincing garlic in a cold sweat because they are intergalactic and operatic, oracular and spectacular, and they're bringing some of history's heaviest hitters to dinner. Joining us for today's episode is filmmaker Natalie Biancari. Natalie is an award-winning writer, director, and producer whose feature films include Wolf, which premiered in our hometown Toronto, TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival last year, and Nocturnal from 2019. But Natalie's film career began at the BBC, didn't it, Mon? Yeah, that's right. She actually started out there as a researcher for documentaries and left directing and shooting her own projects. And her short films have won awards internationally and been screened at festivals such as South by Southwest, Edinburgh, London, Palm Springs, Torino, Sofia, and many others. I first met Natalie at journalism school and then she went on to become an international indie filmmaking superstar. Without further ado, since she's waiting at the door, should we let her in? Yes, do let's. Natalie, hi. Hello, how are you guys? Welcome, we're so happy to have you. Thank you, where can I leave my coat? Oh, I'll just hang it up for you over here. What can we offer you to drink? I will have, well, unfortunately at the moment, I think just a drop of, a drop of rosé. <laughs> Sadly, not more for me. Although normally it would be a whiskey. <sighs> noted, noted for next time. Please, can you tell us who you've invited to dinner and why? Well, it took me a while to think who I would want to bring to this dinner because it's obviously a very, very exciting opportunity. And, you know, I debated and debated. I was like, would I want to have like Bergman there? Like, but then I was like, God, he would be so difficult. And, <laughs> and, you know, and it could be a potentially dangerous situation given that they know three women and he's had about like 15 wives. So, 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 so I thought I parked that one. And then I thought maybe Claire Denis, who I also adore, but she's very scary. Uh, so then I thought maybe not. And then I thought, you know who? Herzog, because he's just so mental. And obviously he's an incredible filmmaker, although I've only probably seen like a tenth of his sort of 62 films. But uh, but I thought he has such great stories and he's, you know, such great sayings and such a crazy life and work ethic that I thought he would be just someone really fun to have at dinner. Well, that's right. And so we um, we heard a rumor that he might be the one accompanying you to dinner. And I have to say, I, I've been watching a few interviews with him and listening to some interviews, and he has a pretty, uh, a pretty brilliant sense of humor, doesn't he? 
Yeah, exactly. And he's because he, it's so dry. And also, obviously, his German accent just like adds, you know, 50%. But he's so aware of all of those things. But at the same time, I think he has a brilliant sense of humor and then kind of also is like not even trying to be funny at all, which makes him particularly funny. One thing I loved in an interview that I listened to with him, he was telling the the host that he has to bring a gag on set because when something's particularly good, like if a take is great, even if it's not funny, if the take is good, he starts laughing hysterically and he has to gag himself with a piece of fabric to stop him from ruining the take. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. I didn't know that actually. But I think, that, and that's the thing is there's just so much, uh, you would just like sort of sit and listen to him for an hour. And even though he's so interested in human nature that he probably wouldn't, he, you know, he's not, I can't imagine he'd bang on about himself for that long. But I think if you fed him tidbits, you could get just such a collection of great tales from Herzog. Absolutely agree. But so for you as a filmmaker, what speaks to you most about his films? And have they inspired your own work? I, I, I don't want to draw an obvious parallel, but I can certainly see some Grizzly Man influences perhaps in Wolf. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, Grizzly Man is just, I think it's just such a, such a, a wacko great film. And I just love the fact that this character is someone who, like, believes so much till the end. And I did, mm. and I did give George a copy of, I mean, I gave him a very eclectic bunch of, of different things when we were preparing for Wolf, but Grizzly Man was... George McKay, the young man who, who plays yes, the wolf sorry, boy. Yes, sorry, sorry, yes, yes, exactly, yes, the lead in, in, in my last film, Wolf. And so Grizzly Man was amongst the, the, the sort of different objects and books and and films that I gave him. I mean, Her- Herzog is so diverse in his work, you know, so it's, it's almost hard to say, is he an influence? Because there is such a range, you know, from Grizzly, Grizzly Man to Fitzcarraldo to Caspar Hauser, but I guess... You know, what I really, really admire is that I find him like he really goes for things, you know, and I think this in that sense is like probably what inspires me the most about him as a, as a director. He's just someone who 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 jumps like I mean, he has this great saying, which is I don't know what fear is. It's not in my dictionary of behavior, <laughs> which is like incredible and like who can say that? And obviously, like a Freudian psychoanalyst would really have like a problem with this, but I also believe it with him, you know, I mean, he's gone like to the ends of the earth. He's explored like any strange situation that he kind of comes across. He jumps into and digs into and yeah. And I think that's like super inspiring, like not take yourself like too seriously and think you're always going to make another film and just fucking go for it, you know? Yeah. And it also seems like he's always making a kind of an interesting comment about the human experience. Again, uh, sorry, I can I got to come back to Wolf again because it really marked us. We loved it. You seem to be making a few different comments about the human experience as well in this your uh, your sophomore feature film, isn't it? I, I wanted to just explore that a little bit more with you. Um, I mean, I personally saw it sort of as a film about love and whether you can like deny your true self for love. Am I going down the wrong path there? No, no, you're not. Not at all. Like, no, that's definitely like a huge element of it I think you know with Wolf and maybe in this sense also like a lot of Herzog's films I suppose in that sense it's it's he's a filmmaker I kind of like I appreciate the fact that he's very not like very undidactic is that a word or just not didactic and is someone who constantly kind of just leaves things you know again explores a thought 
a world, a theme, a landscape, a story, but but is never, ever prescriptive. And in that sense, I think, you know, Wolf, that was really my intention with this film. I am... Um, I should maybe mention just the fact that the log line is, I suppose, which is kind yeah, of... Yeah, please. It's, it's a film about a, a real syndrome, which is called species dysphoria, which is, however, explored in a in a completely fictional world. And though the film takes place in, a, in an imaginary clinic, which cures people who suffer from... Mostly teenagers who suffer from species dysphoria. So, which means that they basically all think that they're animals trapped in a human body. That that That's what, what the condition is. But some people in, in this clinic, one, one in particular, the lead, George, deeply, deeply feels that he's a wolf uh, trapped in a human body. And the others, I mean, this is very much up to the sort of the audience and it's sort of left. Not, it's not a sort of prescriptive viewing of it, but I think there is a difference between other people's attitudes towards their animals. So I think for some of them, their animal projections are more avatars on which they're sort of projecting a trauma or an incapability to communicate, or just not fitting into the world and finding solace in being a duck or a German shepherd or a parrot. What again, what I really wanted to to do with this film was kind of explore the different relationships that people had to their identity and leave it to the viewer to decide how they feel about it. Right, definitely. Because, you know, maybe this is another easy jump. I suppose it's easy to frame or one might frame this film in a modern context as, you know, an allegory about perhaps conversion camps and centers for what they, you know, for homosexuality or the way trans people aren't necessarily believed about the way that they feel they were born into the wrong body. You obviously don't want to be prescriptive. So if people read that into that, that's okay with you or or, or is it completely off the mark? No, I think I, I obviously there is, especially with Jacob's character, very much the sense of like, you know, do you sacrifice who you truly are to fit in? And so that, of course, applies to certainly, you know, in today's day, I think that has been one of the most frequent readings of it. But I guess mm. what sometimes for me is is tricky is if it's seen, the film is seen just as that. Right. Because, because actually then it kind of, it, it's actually, actually slightly problematic because if you look at some of the other characters, you know, that maybe don't fully, but I mean, German Shepherd chooses to return, you know? I mean, he also wears a costume and Lily Rose admits that she's faking it. So, you know, the question then is, well, then what am I actually saying in the alley? Well, not something I particularly want to say. (laughs) Right, sure. It can be read as such, like maybe through Jacob's character, but I think it's so important to kind of always observe the other characters and the other dynamics and the other questions in the film as well. One thing that really struck me was the hostility of the outside world toward these characters. The idea that the institution is surrounded by hateful people and that there's vandalism and, you know, at one point a dead is it a dead dog that's thrown through the window? Yeah. And there's a there's a suggestion that the only people who have ever run away, the, there was one person who ran away at one point and was beaten to a pulp and left to die in the woods by the local townspeople. And then from within as well, the man whose character is referred to as the zookeeper, who's in charge of the institution, seems to have a kind of visceral hatred for these patients, which unfortunately reminds me of some of what I've seen in mental health care, not necessarily from doctors treating patients, but from the outside world saying, you're faking it. Think about addiction or an eating disorder or certain 
mental health conditions where people are treated as perhaps being more in control than they are. And there's a kind of hatred and a hostility for, Mm -hmm. you know, these, it's not the same as a physical illness where, you know, you get more potentially sympathy and kind of understanding and a sense that it's out of your control. There's this question mark in people's minds of like, to what extent are you putting this on? You know, can you just stop taking the drugs? Can you just stop drinking? Were you thinking about that at all when you were writing it? Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think there's the violence that emerges, especially from like the misunderstanding of something and kind of like that sense that that exactly that things can kind of be fixed or straightened, um, which which I, I do think is very much tied to mental health issues. And I think obviously we are sort of like getting better today. But then of course the question is like, there's always, we're also constantly evolving and problems are constantly changing. So in a way it's a sort of archetypal story, but it also at the same time, like can, will renew itself. I think unfortunately, like with every new, you know, condition or yeah, or situation. Yeah, and, and and actually something I was just thinking about, how did you originally come across species dysmorphia? Is this something that you were following or did you have a sort of Herzogian discovery of this more obscure subject and really want to just get right into it and figure it out through your film while writing and making? Yeah, well, in fact, exactly. And actually, it's, it's funny because like I haven't until, you know, you asked me, who do you want to bring to dinner? I hadn't like thought about Herzog in, in a while in the sense that you know obviously you always go through phases as well of who, who, who you're watching more particularly and stuff and it's kind of only now that we're bringing up the parallels that I thought you know that that is probably like one similarity which is he is someone who I think yeah becomes a little bit obsessed with um with these like real life phenomenons that he he, he discovers or like a mad sort of far-fetched story mm-hmm. and and I and I have to say I am very similarly drawn to that those kind of circumstances or tales and I spent so many years before making Wolf um, trying to make a documentary, which actually in many ways was like a precursor to Wolf, like thematically, but I I never was able to make it. And it was about a man who was born black in Ireland in the 1950s and was one of, and was abandoned and sort of sent to an orphanage and was one of the few or actually only black children in this orphanage and in the court and he was sort of praying to be white as a child and in the span of his life he actually turned white through vitiligo not attempting to but just through this and uh you know we never made the film in the end but I mean it opened up a lot of questions for me um which are very very pertinent wolf which is are you defined by who you are by the skin that you live in by your desires and and I and I think in some ways that's kind of I guess like maybe almost closer to me than the, like the trans allegory that a lot of people read into the film because I, I was so interested in, in his relationship with his skin and his identity and it kind of haunted him throughout his life. But with species dysphoria, and that was again, I only had heard of it, his story through the, through the news, through an article. And similarly with species dysphoria, it was just a random article about a woman who thought she was a cat in Norway and the article was like quite derisive, in fact, and and sort of wasn't, wasn't taking it very seriously. But I think, which obviously, you know, and I think that's that's where Wolf also has those elements of humor, because of course there's humor to this condition, inevitably, you know, because it is quite different and sort of unimaginable and strange in many ways. But I also 
I think, you know, coming from all of those questions, like also saw that like the huge seriousness in this and and also the, the simple fact that like, yes, like what if you do feel like you're a cat actually, you know, and where does that leave you? And what if this is, you know, you, you really feel that you should have fur instead of skin and a tail. I mean, and that puts you in a very difficult life position and there's actually not nothing really sort of funny about that at all. So, so, so I kind of just, I jumped on that and, and, I interviewed people with the condition, but really like quite quickly felt, you know, because I had even contemplated in a Herzogian way, sort of like, would I use real people that happened? But I actually thought I don't want to make, you know, a film about species dysphoria today because I don't feel like in the position to sort of either like make a commentary on on this on this condition right now but rather like use it again as a sort of jumping off point to to discuss identity as a whole. I think you did a really great job of kind of that's it's a fine line between humor and poignancy and I think you did a really really good job of you never dehumanize the characters even in the moments where we can all kind of laugh because something is absurd there's still clearly an empathy for these human beings that was kind of a slip human beings yes but human beings who are who are not wanting to be human beings or don't feel yeah. like human beings but that is like such a great theme that I read into it as well which is how do we actually define humanity is the zookeeper the sort of evil guy in charge who's trying to convince them that they're all humans through terrible methods is he in not in some way the least human of them all because he's like has no regard whatsoever for anyone's feelings and clearly they have regard for each other's feelings all the different inmates so or patients interspecies <laughs> interspecies But we've got it. We've got to plan this dinner because uh, Werner is going to show up. Yes, it's true. It's true. I do want to give a little tiny bit of background just in case someone listening does not know about the early years of Werner Herzog's life. Oh, yeah. Because it's kind of fascinating. He was born in 1942, so in the middle of the Second World War in Munich. And when he was two weeks old, by his telling, his mother found him in his cot covered in shards of glass. He was born in a war zone. She realized it was completely unsafe where they were. And so she brought him to a remote town in the Bavarian mountains. And he grew up there until he was 12 without running water or electricity, an outhouse, no toys, like really make your own fun and a very rustic kind of well, isolated, yes, and because th- he returns to the notion regularly in his films of like humans living away from civilization or the, the kind of barrier between civilization and the wild. And, you know, how permeable is that barrier? And I don't know, it seems to be something that he explores pretty regularly, whether it's with Grizzly Man or even in his Fitzcarraldo, uh, the book that he wrote during the filming of Fitzcarraldo, the attempts of humankind to wrangle nature and make it do our bidding seems to be pretty fascinating to him. Anyway, and then he moved to Munich um, for high school. And there's more to the story, but perhaps we'll let him tell us. But And also, I think he, it's of, of course, like, and obviously you never know, like, where if like, I don't think, I'm not saying that he bullshit, like, would bullshit. But of course, with these, like, incredible filmmakers that have become so legendary, you sort of always wonder where sort of myth and truth overlie. But I do, I do think he, he left school, like he started making films at basically 14 and was, and, and I think at 17 
one of someone like uh for, he like was pitching and pitching to television companies and they kind of led him into his like finally someone was like okay come and meet us and they saw him they're like what the hell like you're like a kid basically but he like started like he's one of his big things is that he was like I'm gonna work you know I'm gonna work immediately and like you know filmmaking is a calling and and that was it you know and he made short after short after short and you know and and this is like I think that is so for me like his hunger and zest for learning and and just pushing and just making is fascinating even though you know he says like he's very open about he's like I don't look inside I look outside yeah when I absolutely love to look inside and so like in in that sense like you know there's definitely a difference but I I just admire his his like endless kind of courage and I think you know by the time he's 25 he'd made like two three feature films you know wow having i th- i believe i read just a fun fact he stole his first camera because he obviously like i don't think he could afford one and he kind of just tells this story he doesn't get into the like dredges of moral judgment he's just like you gotta do what you gotta do i kind of love it ask for forgiveness not permission yeah exactly speaking of permission and forgiveness do you think are we calling him mr herzog or are we calling him Werner? That's a good question. Maybe we should call him Werner because we're, I think Werner. Is, it's gonna. We're hoping it's gonna be an intimate dinner party. Okay, Natalie, what's your opening question for Werner? Oh God! Um, <laughs> wow, that is so many. Also, because like you also don't want to, you know, you wouldn't want to irritate him with like some banal. Like he also like really talks about how much he hates like being interrogated about his films. He doesn't suffer fools. I guess I'd I'd say I'd say you know what I'd ask him I'd ask him what he's what he's working on next because like to be honest that's always I mean he's still making after you know sixty five films he's still he's still making a new thing and it's always like quite new I mean the last film I saw this which I don't even know who was the last last but it was was about rental companies for families in Japan you know so whatever he's making now will be in some way bonkers and interesting and <laughs> definitely worth asking. Where are we having this dinner, by the way? Yeah, we need to think about that. I'd say someplace, well, maybe at home. Like, I have a feeling like nothing too fancy, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what you guys were thinking. He really doesn't seem like he's into consumerism of any kind. No, and in Googling his dietary preferences, which I'll get to, I found this quote where he said, I despise formal restaurants. I find all of that formality to be very base and vile. I would much rather eat potato chips on the sidewalk. (laughs) There you go. I think it would be fine to kind of, you know, I wouldn't mind... If you guys would mind, I wouldn't mind like cooking like a pasta or something. I've like had this. your pasta. That would be really good. That's a great idea. I think exactly like quite chilled, simple, nothing too. Where are you right now, by the way? We should have asked this earlier. I'm in London. I'm in London. So you guys could come to my new flat. I feel like he might be okay to come to London. I mean, the place that we don't want to... He he actually really doesn't seem to like New York very much. He He's made a lot of statements about how Los Angeles is, in fact, the most sophisticated place in the United States, which I think probably would rub a lot of New Yorkers the wrong way. He's a provocateur. I, I have to say, I know... I, the, I am amazed that he lives in LA. That is like... But then again, he is full of these sort of like incongruities. It's just not what you would expect of a sort of not. austere... And he's very economical as well. That's another thing. I mean, another great, great sort of like 
ethic of his on shoots is like he's like I'm always like on time and under budget which uh. I don't know about under budget my guess, but you know on time certainly like I always like to sort of say like I'm always on time and and I do like like I really hate like waste in film like I think it's just so so annoying and you know if the catering is too nice like there is a bit of an issue because like why is that money not going on screen so so I think with Werner <laughs> yeah. but then again it is bizarre he lives in LA which is sort of in, indeed quite a consumeristic and expensive city. But I think he'd be grand at the, at the flat. Excellent. Well, thank you. Bon appétit. And Emma, did you have some ideas about the menu? Yes, let's talk about our menu. One thing that I do know about Werner's culinary preferences is that the man occasionally likes to eat shoes, boiled with garlic, herbs and stock for five hours, preferably by Alice Waters from Chez Panisse. Um... <laughs> Should I explain a little bit about what I'm on about? It apparently started out uh, as a bet with Errol Morris. And allegedly, Herzog had said to Morris, if you ever complete the film Gates of Heaven, I will eat my shoe. True to his word, when the film was completed in April of 1979, Herzog made a short documentary film of his own in which he had Alice Waters of Chez Panisse boil his shoes for five hours in stock with garlic and herbs. And then he ate them uh, in front of a live audience at the premiere of Gates of Heaven, the Errol Morris <laughs> film. And, <laughs> and then, but apparently he did not, this is my favorite part. He did not eat the sole of the shoe, however, explaining that one does not eat the bones of a chicken. I love it. Fair enough. Wait, while we're talking about chickens, though, doesn't he have like some weird problem with chickens? He doesn't like chickens. Okay, so I also found this. So I was Googling Werner Herzog. Does he like, is he a vegetarian? You know, what does he eat other than shoes and chips on the sidewalk? And I found that (laughs) there has been apparently a theory floating around different corners of the internet and, you know, Reddit threads and things that he hates that he despises, that he has a personal vendetta against chickens based on appearances that chickens have made in his films. So in a podcast interview on the Origins podcast, he was asked, is it true? Is it true about the chickens? Do you hate them? And I'll let him deliver his answer. They, they frighten me because the flatness of their... When, when you look at the head of a chicken, it's very, very narrow in yeah. the eye here and the yeah. eye there. That narrow, the kind of stupidity looking yeah. at you. Yes. And it's overwhelming and it's kind of frightening. <laughs> a real good roasted chicken on your barbecue is priceless. So he's not against it entirely. He's not against it. I also think that we should let him speak for himself on the subject of whether or not he's a vegetarian. So what do you mean vegetarian? I, I, I do not I do not eat vegetarian stuff. There's just too much vitamins in it i love him but he he did offer in terms of things that he's eaten or i don't think he ate them in the end but he has this like theory not theory it's his ethos again which is sort of like extremely particular but also like i completely agree with which is if you're <laughs> going to ask someone to do something like for a film you know a crew member an actor like you have to be ready to do it yourself and I'm sure he also just like, I think he just gets a personal kick out of doing all those things himself. So he was like the first one to put his like foot into the river and in, in when they were filming Fitzcarraldo and the currents were like crazy. And he got bitten by like, I don't know how many 
rats in Nosferatu, which because there's a shot where like his feet are covered in rats. I mean, it's uh, this like rats are like my absolute pet peeve. So I mean that I really, really can't <laughs> understand. But in terms of food, I think I haven't actually seen that film with Christian Bale, but I believe that there's a scene where Christian Bale eats a bowl of maggots and Werner was like, I shall do it first. And he was like, it's okay. You're grand. I'll do it. (laughs) So, so, uh, so yeah, so he's, yeah, shoes, maggots. I mean. Oh my gosh. Another bet one, like the Errol Morris one. I read, I can't remember which film set it was on. I think it may have been even Dwarf Start Small, but anyway, it was, there had been some injuries on set. And so he promised that if the cast took extra special care not to injure themselves again, he would jump into a cactus once they finished shooting the project. And it was his way of showing solidarity. Uh, and then, lo and behold, no more injuries. So true to his word, he jumped into a cactus. And allegedly, he said afterwards, it was a nasty one. That, oh my God. I have to just jump in here after having watched the extremely grisly documentary that is Grizzly Man. I wonder how he showed his participation on that one because in Grizzly Man, you know, he does sort of talk about or you do get the sense that he is much less trusting of the bears, obviously, than Timothy, the the, the grizzly man himself. And I wonder if he like, I mean, I suppose he went there and everything, but I don't know. It really, I feel like we need to talk about Grizzly Man more as well, because it's this just weird. Well, so Grizzly Man, maybe just to, just to, to, because it's, again, you know, he's always, always doing different things, you know? So like sometimes like, again, it's, you know, he's, I mean, he really, I think, I mean, uh, now I forget, like he's played like, acting parts in huge films he's done I mean he's always like he did a 3D film which is quite interesting like the caves of cave of forgotten dreams I think I think that's the one so he's every every time interested in experiencing something new in Grizzly Man this footage was actually brought to him so what happened there was that Timothy had had been recording this footage you know for years and then obviously as we know I mean spoiler but you know gets killed by a grizzly bear eaten and his girlfriend. So sad. It's hardcore. It's hardcore. I mean, that scene where where we hear it, it's just very intense. And I think actually it was, I'm not entirely sure if like this footage was brought to like, I think a studio or something. It was meant for somebody else or like someone, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. And Herzog was like, I'm putting my hands uh, on I want this. this. So, yes, I want this. And um, so all of his commentary obviously is kind of like afterwards, like he edited it and, and put it together. Although... You know, it is like, in some ways, like just the Herzog story. It's it's the kind of character. I mean, he's always fascinated with those characters who, in in some ways, like him, you know, sort of have no, you know, sort of transcend like normal behavior or, you know, have this like, you know, extreme either, you know, dream or sort of situation or story. Yeah, I just, I just found it like, I find it like a very... For me, it's like a very touching film about, again, like the extent of like of belief, you know, and, you know, maybe some people could think he's mad. But for me, this this character is not crazy at all. Like, I, I don't think so. I mean, OK, he died by the hand of the bear, but that was, you know, he followed his dream until the end. By the claw. Well, and he knew that he always knew that that was a possibility. And also... I thought what I loved about the film was the extent to which it was a character study and a a very kind of sensitive one about somebody who 
was going through an inner struggle. You know, Timothy Treadwell talks about how he struggled with addiction and the bears helped him find a different way to live, a different way to be in the world. And he was so, and the foxes, and he was always so grateful. I was so struck by how he kept saying to the foxes, thank you for being my friend and to the bears. And that was just so, to me, moving. It's touching. It's super, it is, it's super moving. And also like, and yeah, completely, completely agree that, you know, again, it's, um you know, he found sort of solace and like, to yes, like, does he live in an illusion? Yes, he does. Because like, you know, and is there sort of self-delusion? Like, probably like. But like, raise your hand if you don't. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. But Herzog does not live in the same illusion at all. Like he really, and if you go listen to him talk about nature in other interviews, he's like not trusting of nature on the same level at all. But I suppose that's part of what makes him so interested in someone that was. What makes his films also then, you know, funny. So so like is his detached, you know, commentary as well. And that like, you know, that pinch of irony, which again, though, I think not to go back to, to Wolf, but just I guess it's something that I've realized like people do sometimes struggle with like mixed tones, you know, and they think that if something is one thing, it can't be another. So if there's humor in certain moments, like, in the film, you know, then like, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me like it's very, I found it a very uncomfortable experience because am I laughing at those people? But then, you know, it actually gets very dark and like really like it's been very, very jarring for certain audience members. And it, it's certainly a film has divided massively people. But what I kind of, personally feel and I would definitely you know this is what I also see in in Herzog's films like life the humans are complex and things can completely coexist you know and a point of view can coexist like you can still you know I think you can still look at Timothy with like affectionate irony in certain moments because again it is like it is a bonkers premise you know just to like you know just to speak simply like to go and live with the bears to have this like but I think he has enormous admiration and love for for this character and I think there is admiration I think he'd rather have dinner with Timothy than like you know half the douchebags in Hollywood so so in a sense like what is his position towards this person you know it is of utter respect and he has honored him in that way but I think you know he's mental and and then that, that that's also fine. I agree. And since when, it, you know, within humanity, are darkness and humor mutually exclusive? Exactly. It reminds me too of something that he said about uh, he made nine films on death row, and he he was talking about one of them in which he was talking to he was interviewing a man who was to be killed in eight days, and this young man was had been convicted of a particularly heinous crime. And Herzog said to him before the interview, I don't have to like you. I'm going to ask from your perspective what happened. And I don't believe in capital punishment. However, you know, just so you know, at the outset of this conversation, it's not my job to like you or to make a case for you. And the young man said, okay. Uh, and, and Herzog said, you know, it was as if he'd never been spoken to that way before. The kind of, it's usually with a character on death row or someone like Timothy Treadwell, people have strong opinions going in one way or the other. And they either want to like the person or they want to loathe the person. And they're kind of going in with an agenda. And I think Herzog, part of the reason why his films are so powerful is that he doesn't make his perspective count in that way. It's He's observing them and letting their humanity unfold how it will. 
Exactly. That's why I think they're so, so interesting. Like in all of their kind of difference, you know, for Caspar Hauser is so different from Fitzcarraldo and his and so many of the documentaries. And now I can some of them even like one in one that he follows just this woman through the jungle to see that where the, the plane crashed that killed her parents. Like I mean, there's just it's just infinite kind of explorations. And and sometimes I think one thing that I'll criticize Herzog is that I think that he's so curious about life and there's so many you know films that he wants to make and stories he wants to tell that I think at times he kind of rushes he's rushed through some of his films a bit that I'm like oh you could have spent a bit more on that like but that's also it's it's it's, it's his infinite charm like he is just so curious that I feel like he's like oh I want to make a film about technology like almost like also for himself you know yeah and then kind of you know moves on but um again I th- that's what's so beautiful and it's just and it and, and that's why he is like even though he, and it's great because he's kind of a legend and everybody knows him and and you know and he is super popular with like you know he has his rogue film school as well and a lot of like young directors admire him but which which is great because I think it opens that door to like reminding us like in a counter what counter Hollywood way although he always says like why is Hollywood considered mainstream like who has established that that is the mainstream but and like and he hates calling films independent but you know he is a reminder that like you know not things don't all need to be like simmered down to one question one question one answer one tone one theme like it's it's infuriating, like the prescriptiveness, I think, that we're sort of like force fed with today. It's just a bit nauseating. Completely. Agreed. Two quick things come out of that for me. One is that one thing I'd like to bring up with, with Werner is that in perhaps in the interest of speed or of, you know, shooting a film in the jungle with all the challenges uh, inherent therein. I don't think he sufficiently taught or I don't think anyone sufficiently taught Klaus Kinski to paddle a canoe. I was shocked as a Canadian watching this man who supposedly has, you know, in that first scene, his hands are bloodied because he's paddled all the way to this remote opera house. And, you know, you're supposed to believe that the man can, he then takes a steamboat upstream. Like you like to think that the man is seaworthy, but my gosh, watching him paddle was shocking. (laughs) That's so funny. I guess I don't know enough about paddling, but like, I think two Canadians would spot that for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that would hurt her. I think he would be, I think he would be upset by that because he is very precise. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a different Amazon strategy. Maybe the river requires a different technique. He, He could, he could have an answer of that sort where he'd be like, um actually <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say maybe bring this up if the dinner party's going really well okay, okay okay i'll keep it to myself if things are not but i think he could like a bit of provocation that way you know i i, I think he's up for it. like i mean do, uh, he must be bored of people being so sycophantic and just being like oh my god They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could florals do for spring, groundbreaking. So this is actually I was trying to think about what we were going to wear to this dinner party, not to bring it back to the basics, but we do need to think about this because, yes. you know, Werner is absolutely a self-declared anti-consumerist, as I mentioned earlier, which doesn't always gel with the fashion world, <laughs> to, to say the least, and so. While getting dressed, I suggest 
We need to figure out our looks without being suck-ups. We, we, we still want to be true to ourselves. In actually the same interview, Emma, that you were mentioning on the Origins podcast, he, which, by the way, is a great, not to suggest another podcast, but is a great interview. He laments the fact, for example, just in terms of consumerism, that 45% of food on earth is thrown out. And he does recall that his brother and himself were really genuinely hungry uh, after the war in Germany. And so he he never throws out any food. So don't let if there are leftovers, we put them in the fridge, guys. Not that we wouldn't anyway. And in the same breath, he kind of refers to the fact that he has a strictly anti-consumerist approach to fashion. Uh, he clearly states that he has only one pair of shoes and then quickly corrects himself. Oh, no, wait, no, another for mountain climbing. So two pairs of shoes. I'm not going to tell you guys on air here how many pairs of shoes I have, but let's close the closet if we're at my house. Oh, no, we're going to Natalie's house. I I don't have that many, but I definitely have like far too many pairs of Venetian slippers that need to be kind of like (laughs) stored under the bed. You know, we all have our... uh... We all have our temptations. Oh, small obsessions. So what are so what are you gonna wear? So what 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 is the dress code? And actually, we have to also recap what the menu was. Okay, we'll go back to that once we're getting everything in line. Let's just consider now that we're in the brainstorming mood here in our closets. So I feel like I had to think about this, and our best approach is to do a sort of mix of vintage pieces because that's always more planet friendly and not. I remember a conversation because, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, Natalie and I met in journalism school. And I remember when you first started working for the BBC, a conversation that you and I had about describing a completely different fashion identity that than your normal, quite glamorous Italian self that you took on when shooting, <laughs> like in the middle of the night outside. But perhaps that has like been integrated into your general look now but I remember some discussion of puffer coats I feel like maybe a Patagonia in there could be cool we're gonna go for a natural hair and makeup look but we are but we are inside don't you think I know uh, that's true I would like to wear I think it would be really fun to wear a pair of statement thigh high rubber boots okay just to show him that I'm ready for anything that might come you know right okay well I similarly I mean, not really similarly, but somehow similarly, was very tempted by a politically incorrect vintage statement tee. How politically incorrect? What are we talking here? Well, he really doesn't like political correctness, like that kind of prescriptive, this is how we must talk about things stuff. So so I thought, okay, let's just, um, again, hitting those vintage kind of stores, but maybe like a 90s fun statement, not just any old statement, But I I did take a little gander on the internet, and uh, here were some of my favorites. These are all from the 80s and 90s and are to be found on deep, dark quarters of the internet. So one reads, don't act stupid. We have world leaders for that. There was another that said in capitals, absolute proud to be a bitch. (laughs) Now, obviously, that should read absolutely, but let's not worry about grammar. absolute is much better. Let's not worry about grammar. Or my personal favorite, if assholes could fly, this place would be an airport. (laughs) Which, but it might send the wrong message about our dinner party. (laughs) I think I would go for the first one if I were you. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. And it's a nice design. Of course, the other option is just to buy a t-shirt with 
Werner's face on it, there are actually a surprising number of those. Well, it's not that surprising because he does have such a cult following. What if I copied you, Mon? Could I could I copy you? Because that, you just inspired me and I, I have a t-shirt <laughs> which says bad life decisions make great stories. Which I, I think feel that's like... your winner. That's the money. You wear that and a pair of like vintage Levy's jeans and you're set, I think. I have to, I think. That's like really honoring his cause, <laughs> you know. Really... And it's vintage because I've owned it for years, actually. And it's sort of like sort of shapeless and unsightly, but. Excellent. Excellent. I think he's like, his perception of beauty will go above and beyond, you know, the shape of your t-shirt. To conclude on the menu, I think a roasted chicken on the barbecue is is something that we shouldn't pass up the opportunity to impress him with, seeing as how he's confessed to finding that uh, to be a priceless commodity. But Nat, would you make us some pasta to go with it? Yeah, if I, I would totally would if you, if you wouldn't mind if we we could sort of co-chef. I'd I'd love to. I'd be very honored to make. Pretzel. We would be honored. What kind of pasta do you think? Well, again, I feel like. Oh God, so funny. I, I was just thinking, I was like, what would a German like? But, you know, somehow I feel like a carbonara would be good. Although mm. then like it could be quite a heavy meal. But I think it's simple. It's economical. It's unpretentious. Agreed. It has, I was like, it has links to the war. But actually like the story around carbonara is very different because they say like it was Americans that invented it when they were like liberating Italy by oh, putting like really? eggs and, and bacon in pasta. But I don't even know if that's true. It could be a complete myth. But uh, so I'm not sure if that, but I feel, I don't know. I feel like he would like carbonara. I just, I have the sense, you know, and it's like a filling dish it's something to take you out on an adventure and a day of shooting and and so on but i think that and a roast chicken we will be like stuffed after this i think that's good and i think we let's not even do a vegetable because he does not eat the vegetarian stuff there's just too much vitamins in it let's not bother and we'll have room to be stuffed in our uh, oversized statement a very protein fueled supper we can all go for a walk a walk on the canal afterwards and- i can go for a walk in the canal with my boots oh, yes that's true exactly also would probably impress him perfect well guys we better get cracking okay let's get going because he's going to show up soon So, Monica, I would like to read a delightful email that we received from Anna. May I? Yes, please. Yes, please. First off, thanks for making this podcast. I always look forward to a new episode and credit fanfare with both helping me rediscover old loves, Didion, Leonard Cohen, and find new ones, Adam Gothnick. Anna, that's music to our ears. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. She says she has two questions for us. The first one is, I know you both have children and Monica has one more on the way. Congratulations. How did you choose their names? And did any cultural icons slash literary characters, et cetera, inspire you? She says, I imagine Monica is in this process right now. And Uh she's curious if you have any advice on not getting totally lost in the millions of options. Oh, that's such a good question. I actually find child naming to be one of the hardest things. And I am, as you say, in in the middle of it. And it's like genuinely keeping Mark and I up at night at the moment because we cannot agree. So my daughter is named Mia. And a lot of people are like, oh, is it inspired by Mia Farrow? I mean, I think Mia Farrow was a great actress, but it's not like I have some like crazy passion for Mia Farrow. It was genuinely the only name that my husband and I could agree upon from the very beginning. Like we have completely different taste in names. And so she was Mia from sort of four months of pregnancy onwards. 
And I personally think it's really important to think about the flow of the whole name. So her last name was obviously going to be very long and French, De La Villardière. So I wanted something that felt more international, that could be pronounced in a lot of different languages, but that had this sort of fun cinema reference anyway, and is actually used to be a short norm for a longer, more traditional name, Maria, which kind of then reminded me of Maria von Trapp, who I kind of love. So that was fun. And then put my mother's name and my grandmother's name in as middle names to, you know, feel like I was honoring the family a bit. But I I just feel like when you come upon a name that really sounds fun and snappy and works for both of you and has those references that you want or doesn't necessarily have any references but you just love it you kind of know like with Mia we just kind of knew did you feel like that Emma yes I did we actually you mentioned the Adam Gopnik episode Anna and I'm sorry to tell you that we cut this banter that we had about children's names because his daughter Olivia's one of the names that he tested out for her was Esme and I loved that because my daughter's called Esme and I, I do not come across a lot of Esmes. And so, of course, we talked about Salinger, J.D. Salinger, whose short story for Esme with Love and Squalor is one of the only Esmes in literature. Unless Twilight counts, which I don't think it does. Um, but maybe. No, you know oh, what? Twilight counts. No. Sorry, you're right. That's it like, counts. It's like for me, you know, there's uh, in The Princess Diaries, her name is Mia. In uh, Pulp Fiction, her name is Mia. You've got to, I mean, there's all these fun references. It's true. And I momentarily blanked on the fact that Twilight was, is books before it became movies. So Twilight is literature. That's, that's totally fair. For me, it was, we have a family friend called Esme and I loved, I've always loved her name. And she was called Ezzy as a nickname, which I, she still is. And I love that. And so we kind of had it in mind as a slightly more eccentric possibility. Eccentric because you don't come across it a lot. Background, my name is Emma. And in the year below me at school, there were like 6,000 Emmas. Everywhere I went in the hall at school, you would hear Emma, Emma. And I was always turning around and it was never me. And I thought, okay, I'm going to choose something a little more out there for my kids so that they don't have that problem. Not that I don't like my name, I do. And even the Jane Austen character, Emma, is growing on me in my later years. But anyway, so Esme came to us pretty quickly and we knew that it was that it was the one. And then my second daughter, Frida, is a, it's a family name. My great grandmother's name was Frida. But I also, I tried on a million other options and nothing. It just kind of, there's an emotional level and it, obviously it's an aesthetic choice and it's, you know, but you can just sort of, yeah, it either fits and it feels right or it doesn't. And Frida really did. Frida has some great references too. Yes. And we did choose to spell it F-R-I-D-A, which is not how my great grandmother spelled her name. Hers was F-R-E-D-A, which is more kind of the Anglo-Saxon way. F-R-I-D-A is more the kind of Scandinavian way. And Frida Kahlo changed her name a few times because I think at one point Frida sounded too Germanic and she wanted to distance herself from anti-Semitism during the war. And so she she didn't go by Frida for a while. And then she changed the spelling to F-R-I-D-A. There's a whole history there with Frida Kahlo, but I love her as uh, someone to watch over our Frida. So... Okay. And then Anna had another excellent question. She says, I believe you both work for yourselves. I just started freelancing, but I'm struggling to stay on track during my day, i.e. waking up late, staying in my PJs a little too long, scrolling through Instagram instead of looking for work or reading, etc. How do you stay regimented and on track? I realize that with kids, you have to get up early anyway, but do you have any advice to other freelancers on how to schedule their day? Uh, It's another really, really good question. And uh, again, not the easiest to answer because... 
I'm a complete dosser. <laughs> no, because there are days where I struggle with this too, to be completely honest. Emma does not because she is a highly organized and hardworking individual. <laughs> no, but I have to say once you have kids, that time in a sort of room of one's own where you actually have allotted quiet work time is so golden that it almost makes it easier to concentrate. Would you say that, Emma? I think that's totally fair. And re-staying in PJs, I don't know what kind of work you're doing, Anna, but for me, when I'm writing, I do not judge myself if I'm in PJs because time getting dressed is time wasted. The clock's a ticking. If the kid's napping, you got to get to it. For sure. But I do know what she means. You don't really feel very professional. Um, One thing that I do, and I can't remember who, someone gave me this very good advice when I went freelance uh, quite a few years ago now, is I actually force myself to get dressed and go out quickly in the morning and get a takeaway coffee with recycled paper and come back. It kickstarts your day. Well, I did that until I was, now I'm often dropping me off at daycare, but it kind of gets you out of that home body zone and getting out of your pajamas does that too. And caffeine is obviously a very helpful chemical for work. I also find that creating a designated workspace is key. I know work from home has become such a theme because of the pandemic and everything. And, you know, I think this is probably pretty common advice. But for me, it's like, here's my desk. It has all my work things on it. My pens are ready. My computer's ready. I know where to go. And in that place, I work versus like, maybe I'll do some work on the couch. Maybe I'll do some at the kitchen table. Like that's much more of a post dinner flexibility during the working hours. I really like to be at my desk. That's a good point. I don't always follow that, but it's a really good piece of advice. I think when in absolute horrifying doubt, which again has happened to me, maybe you have writer's block, maybe you just can't deal with your apartment anymore. There are lots of places in most cities these days that you can go and get out of the house and do some work. You might have to buy a coffee, but or, you know, co-working spaces or whatever, where there's a kind of work ambiance that I, I do actually kind of recommend. Mm, we've had such a warm summer here in Toronto that I'll just take my notebook sometimes to the lake and sit on a park bench at the lakeshore and write there for a bit, which is a pretty dreamy option. So you should move to Toronto, really, is what I'm saying, Anna. That does sound dreamy. In Paris, they kick you out if you don't buy enough coffee, but other than that... <laughs> other than that, it's a decent place to live. It's an all right place to live. Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you. Or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. Thank you, Anna, for your question. We would love to hear from you. 
you who are not Anna. Also, we'd like to hear from you again, Anna. But please email us, fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. Ask us your questions. I love that she, I, I mean, I love that she thinks that we are people who can purvey any kind of advice. I think that you're right about Emma. She has a lot of good advice to give. I also think that if you just want to write in and tell us what you thought about an episode or if you thought it was thought-provoking in some way and you want to expand on a subject that we brought up or that maybe one of our guests brought up, please don't hesitate. There is no wrong email. That's a very good point, Monica. Please also rate and review us if you liked this. Thank you very much to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. See you next time in a fortnight. We've got some extremely exciting guests coming up. So definitely we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's all.